Hello, folks. Welcome to Notoriously Episcopalian, a podcast of sermons from me, Kelly Hudlow, an itinerant Episcopal priest in Alabama. Thanks for listening. This is a sermon for the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, August 20th, 2023, offered at the Church of the Messiah in Heflin, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 10 through 28, Jesus and the Canaanite Woman. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was growing up in the 1980s and 1990s, there was sort of a craze of bracelets and t-shirts that were emblazoned with WWJD, right, which stood for What Would Jesus Do? Um, it was sort of all over the place, at least in sort of the circles I traveled in um, with Southern Baptists. And it would occasionally show up at the EYC group on Sunday. Somebody would do it. Um, it then became a bit of sort of a tongue-in-cheek joke to sort of say, what would Jesus do uh, in this moment? And it also began to be the way that sort of enlightened Episcopalians maybe separated themselves from less enlightened other Christians that ran around saying WWJD. But these t-shirts and these bracelets and this question of what would Jesus do points to really an important idea that's part of our Christian faith, which is that there is something about Jesus and his life and how he behaved that is supposed to teach us how we're supposed to make decisions and choices and how we're supposed to behave in the world. Uh, The fancy word we call for this is what our ethics are, what our Christian ethics, how do we make decisions on how we're supposed to behave. Now, the what would Jesus do craze came sort of on the heels of an academic movement earlier in the 1980s where a bunch of biblical scholars got together and they sort of took a deep dive in the Gospels looking to try to discern what were words that Jesus actually said, what were things Jesus actually did versus maybe what got added in by the church as it was founded, right? Sort of traditions that that of stories that get told, this idea that maybe some things that are in the Gospels we hold because they are tradition, but then there are things that we can really say, Jesus said this and he did this. One way they went about sorting this out was looking to see how many different Gospels a story or a saying appeared in, right? So if something shows up in all four Gospels, the scholars would say, most likely that happened, right? So we see this with the feeding of the 5,000. It is in all four Gospels that Jesus performs this miracle, They also look to see, like, does the story that's being told sort of match other stories that Jesus has told? Jesus liked to have an ironic twist in his stories, so that's sort of a characteristic marker. But then a final one is, is the saying or the story embarrassing for the church? With the idea being, if it doesn't make us look good, but we included it in the Gospels anyway, then that means it probably did happen, because why would you include something that didn't make you look good unless it happened? This morning's Gospel reading is a prime example of a story that fits that category, right? A story where Jesus doesn't come off looking so great, this encounter he has with the Canaanite woman. And it appears not just in the Gospel of Matthew, but is also in Mark, except in Mark she's called a Syrophoenician woman. 
But the story is basically the same. This foreigner, this Gentile comes to Jesus because her daughter is possessed and she pleads with Jesus to, to help her and to heal her daughter. And in both of these stories, Jesus' response is to tell her that his healing is not for her, right? That his healing is for the people of Israel. And he dismisses her as a dog. This is shocking to us probably, right? Because this makes it sort of cringeworthy because this is not the Jesus that we expect to read about, right? When we think, what would Jesus do? We don't say, well, Jesus would say to a mother desperate to have her daughter healed, go away from me, right? You know, this is not for you. You're a dog. Leave me alone. But yet, it is in the Gospels. Jesus, in this moment, instead of offering sort of the love and compassion that we expect to receive from him, instead sides with those that are around him, right? The disciples are like, send her away. She keeps bothering us. She keeps shouting at us. The Pharisees have been very much about Jesus needs to stop hanging out with the wrong sorts of people. Why aren't his disciples following the rules and washing their hands before they eat, right? And Jesus is beginning to push back on that and say, it's not following these particular rituals that keeps you pure. It's how you behave. But then in the very next breath, the way he behaves is shocking to us. Now, scholars have wrestled with this passage. They've done a lot to try to save Jesus from himself, right? So we have looked and said, well, maybe Jesus was just trying to test this woman, but he knew because of her faith that she would pass it, right? So it's not as offensive that he says to her, woman, go away, right? You know, my salvation is not for the dogs. But that doesn't meet the compassion test either, right? That's no better than just Jesus calling her a dog and sending her away to say that instead our Lord and Savior takes a woman in her most desperate hour and plays a trick on her to test her to see if she can meet some sort of magic test that he's not telling. It still fails to offer the compassion that we expect from Jesus. Another argument that scholars try to make is that a dog, right, this term was commonly used by Jewish folks about Gentiles. But guess what? That's not true. When we look at the Jewish faith during this period of time, Jewish people welcomed Gentiles into the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles, right? Gentiles could not go all the way into the temple where the Jewish people were, but they were part of the worshiping community there. And Gentiles that believed in the God of Israel were called God-fearers. It's actually early Christians that used the harsh language of calling non-believers dogs. Another argument tries to say that dog is a term of endearment. But if that's true, Jesus still doesn't meet the compassion test because how compassionate is it to look at a woman so desperate and to call her a little dog as though she is something less than human? So what do we do with this story? Because what would Jesus do in this moment doesn't seem like a great option. The first thing I think we have to do is we have to take the fact that this story is just one scene that is part of a larger story that the writer of the Gospel of Matthew is telling. Just last week, right, we hear the story of Jesus, right, so powerful that he can walk on water and calm the storms and so powerful that Peter dares to get out of the boat to walk on the waves and Jesus saves Peter when his faith is not enough and he begins to sink. 
And this week we get a glimpse of Jesus limited by his traditional understanding and the community of his birth and how he was brought up and what his understanding of salvation and mission and ministry was and that that was limited to the Jewish people. We get all-powerful Jesus and we get a Jesus very much the product of first century Palestine Jewish understanding. How do we make the two make sense? I don't think we're supposed to. I think we're supposed to hold them exactly in the tension that they offer us because the gospel writer in Matthew is telling a story of incarnation, of humanity, of God meeting us exactly where we are. And that is a completely complicated and messy and contradictory story to tell. Matthew tells us from the beginning, this isn't going to be easy. When you look at his genealogy, it is filled with the women that are in Jesus' family tree, right? Not just the men. It includes Tamar, a Canaanite woman, right? Who maybe was a little less than honest, but in her sort of deceit, she proved a king of Israel to be less righteous than she was. And she was rewarded. She's in Jesus' family tree. Jesus has another Canaanite woman in his family tree, Rahab. Go read that story in the book of Joshua. But let's just say she was a Canaanite woman of questionable character with a curious occupation. But she helped the Jewish army lead and find victory, right? These two women are mixed in with all the other noteworthy men and women in Jesus' family tree. It's complicated. It's messy. And now a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, recognizing who he is, calling him Lord three times. And at the beginning of their encounter, Jesus' view of his mission is narrowly defined. But by the end of their encounter, Jesus is celebrating her faith and setting the stage for the salvation of the whole world, not just the Jewish people. So whatever it means to be Jesus, son of David, as the Canaanite woman calls him, To be God incarnate, it means to be a Jesus that walks on water and calms the storm on one day and on the next day. To be a Jesus that's challenged by a Canaanite woman and has to have his mind changed. It's incarnationally complicated. So what would Jesus do? What can we take from the story for how we are supposed to behave in this day that we live in? How we are supposed to look to Jesus as an example of godly life in light of this story? Is it just something that's embarrassing that maybe we should push aside, take out of the Sunday lectionary? Or is it giving us some lesson that we can hold on to? Each one of us moves through the world, right? Making decisions and meeting people based on our knowledge and experience that we have up until this very moment. And we can think about how that knowledge, you know, where it came from, right? Our parents taught us certain things. When we went to school, we learned other things. If we came to church, we learned other things about how we understand the world and God, right? We move around sort of in our regional culture and we learn history and manners and to say yes ma'am and no ma'am like that. We don't come out saying that. We're taught how to sort of behave and interact with people from our faith, from our parents, from our school. We learn a lot from our friends, good or bad, right? Sometimes our friends teach us good things, sometimes not so great things, but right, we learn from our friends that are around us, from people that we care about 
on and on and on, right? These are all the things that go into our knowledge and experience. And so in any given moment, when we meet someone or enter into a decision-making moment, all of that is there with us. And so when we encounter someone or something that challenges us, what we have to work with is everything that we've learned from before. And sometimes that person or that thing doesn't line up with what we know to be true. And so we may react. We may react poorly. We may look at a Canaanite woman desperate for healing for her child and call her a dog. But what we do next is almost more important than what we do first. Because if we let that experience, that new person, that challenge, whatever it may be, whatever boundaries we are crossing, if we let that add into our experience and change what we do next, then we are following the example of Jesus. Whether it's somebody of a different race or tradition or experience, somebody from a different part of the country or a different part of the world, when we are made uncomfortable and challenged, we can either double down on what we think we know or we can open up ourselves to learning something different. That's what I think Jesus would do. And I think that's what Jesus does in this moment. He doesn't stay with his first response. He doesn't stay with his narrow view of what his mission and ministry is. Instead, he opens himself up to be changed by this Canaanite woman and her desperate plea and her acknowledgement of who he is. And so from this challenging passage, I think we learn what would Jesus do is admit that you made a mistake and act differently when you have new information to move from a narrow view of a world into a view that is ever increasing in its inclusion and its compassion. Amen.